Hello, welcome to the fourth episode of the Comma Press podcast, a series of conversations with writers, historians and activists inspired by the anthology protest Stories of Resistance, which tasked authors with the challenge of reimagining key moments of British protest history through the medium of fiction with collaborations with experts. My name is Zoe Turner, and this month we're looking at the suffragette movement, in particular perhaps the darkest moment of this campaign, the tactic of hunger striking and the prison policy of force-feeding hunger strikers. So I thought we'd start by putting this stage of the campaign in a bit of context. The suffrage movement in Manchester had been going over nearly 40 years, since the formation of the Manchester National Society for Women's Suffrage in 1867 and it was getting nowhere. There was a turning point in 1905 when Sir Edward Grey, a leading Liberal, came to speak at the Free Trade Hall, campaigning for the Liberals, and Christabel, the daughter of the founder of the WSPU, that's the Women's Social and Political Union, and a mill girl from Oldham, Annie Kenny, refused to sit down or be quiet until their question, will the Liberal government give women the vote, was answered. Their aim was to be arrested, and Christabel resisted and fought back, and they were eventually arrested outside for starting an impromptu public meeting in the street among those leaving the hall. This was the deliberate act of disruption. In 1910, the Conciliation Bill was tabled in Parliament, which would have given one million women who owned property the right to vote, but it failed to become law. In retaliation, in November, 300 WSPU women marched on Parliament to be beaten and verbally abused by what were effectively riot police in what became known as Black Friday. In 1911, in reaction to Asquith's manhood suffrage bill, the WSPU started smashing windows in a campaign through London. This heightened militancy continues on into 1912 and spiralled into arson attacks. As the violence intensified, uh, women were consistently being arrested and imprisoned and they started to be force-fed because they went on hunger strike kind of while their demands were not being met and partly because they were being kept prisoner as um, second division rather than first division so they weren't being kept prisoner as political prisoners rather as criminals Uh, so in 1913 the Cat and Mouse Act was introduced um, which allowed authorities to temporarily release suffragettes on hunger strike and then re-arrest them once they have recuperated or if they'd um, acted again and in June of course Emily Wilding Davidson was famously killed by King George's horse at the Epsom Derby Uh, which was followed by a massive funeral with 50,000 lining the route in London, which was staged with the all-deliberate brilliance of a military funeral. So today I am joined by Michelle Green, who wrote the story that we'll be focusing on in this episode, which is called There Are Five Ways Out of This Room. It's about an imprisoned working-class suffragette who was being forcibly fed, um, which was the method that was introduced during the militant suffrage movement, which began with uh, Annie Kenny protesting at the Free Trade Hall. Michelle is a British-Canadian writer living in Manchester. As well as contributing to the protest anthology, she is the author of one poetry chapbook, Nihai Affairs, and a collection of short stories, Jebel Mara, which is drawn from her experience as an aid worker in Darfur. Michelle wrote, There are five ways out of this room in consultation with historian, researcher and writer Elizabeth Crawford, who is also joining us today. Elizabeth has been researching women's history since the 1960s and most recently is the author of Art and Suffrage, a biographical dictionary of suffrage artists. We're also joined by Helen Antrobus, previous curator at the People's History Museum in Manchester, who curated the exhibition Represent Voices 100 Years On to mark the centenary, and Helen is an expert on suffrage. Hi Elizabeth, thanks for joining us. One of the first questions that um, Ra wanted me to put to you was that through these events there is a very clear line of escalation in the tactics of the suffragettes. Had the government ever seen anything like this and was there a single point where they had realised how serious this was, do you think? 
Well, I don't think they actually realised, or at least they didn't take it as seriously uh, as they might have, really, up until the last minute. It was only really uh, sort of uh, May, June 1914 that they really cracked down, the Home Office really cracked down on the, on the WSPU. Mm. Um, up until then, I, I always get the impression that the government had quite enough else on its plate, and although the women were uh, annoying, um, they... Uh, you know, weren't going to expend too much energy on them. Um, and uh, so the, it, it did escalate in in sort of jumps, yes, I, I think it was. Um, rather than, it was quite a steady escalation um, with um, the women becoming increasingly violent and um, the government then uh, putting measures in place to deal with each specific uh, you know, change of uh, tactics, but not really giving it um, all that much thought. It was just um, uh, just really not long before war broke out that um, I think the Home Office um, really uh, decided that uh, um, they were going to stamp out the WSPU, and they were really being quite successful. They'd um, cut off the lines of money supply, they'd hounded them from office to office and from printing press to printing press, Although uh, the WSPU did always manage to, uh, or most of the time, manage to get uh, the paper, the suffragette, out. But uh, what would, I mean, this is one of the, my um, points I'm always making, is that um, the WSPU was in many ways saved by the outbreak of war, because I can't really believe that uh, they could have um, withstood the whole force of the state for very much longer. Their leaders were in prison or in and out of prison in the case of Mrs. Pankhurst, um, but others were in uh, and were being forcibly fed without uh, causing sufficient damage for them to be released under the Cat and Mouse Act. Um, so the head, as it were, of the organisation was being cut off and their uh, finances um, and uh, their places of, um, uh, of uh, where they could speak were being uh, narrowed down as well. They, they couldn't speak in, they couldn't get higher public halls, they couldn't speak in, um, you know, on commons, uh, uh, or at least theoretically they couldn't. The, the police would put a stop to that. So um, I, I, I think it's one of the great ifs of what would have happened. Yeah, I was just about to ask you what, what you thought would have happened if war hadn't broken out. Do you have any theories? Well, I think there probably would have been a disaster of some kind or another because although, of course, the WSP always said that they uh, never intended to hurt anybody or uh, anybody, it was just property. In fact, there were many near misses um, houses set alight where they didn't know that the servants were still there and uh, they got out but there would have been some disaster I think um, either to an innocent bystander or even to one of the uh, one of them themselves and it would have created some uh, you know horrendous drama and um, things might have changed. So force feeding itself um, I think is quite a it's obviously it's such a kind of horrible form of torturing these women and it seems to kind of emerge as this unwritten nationwide policy for dealing with hunger strikes um i'm wondering if the policy got handed down from above or was it a president from previous well, political prisoners uh, it wasn't necessarily political it was the way that uh, uh, prisoners uh, not prisoners inmates were uh, dealt with in asylums i mean people who didn't have mental capacity and perhaps were refusing 
to eat. I mean, just through uh, um, uh, you know unbalanced minds, and so uh, forcible feeding was used in those cases, and it was just transferred into the prisons. Um, the, the same process. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I wonder, Elizabeth, can you tell us a little bit about how your research? What kind of research did you form? specifically for Michelle how did that conversation start and how did you kind of form your ideas around Um, what Michelle wanted to write I think she just asked me as far as I remember I mean quite simply something about forcible feeding and I pointed her towards um, various um, uh, written accounts such as Sylvia Pankhurst but also I do think though I don't know if she was able to listen to it because it's not yet um available online but there's the most wonderful recording well uh, well it's wonderful uh, recording in the women's library it's in a collection that was done in the 1970s by professor brian harrison who uh, went round a whole series uh, of uh, elderly suffragists and suffragettes uh, many of them in nursing homes because um, they were uh, you know very old by then Mm-hmm. And listening to their uh, uh, accounts of uh, the life in the suffrage campaign, one of them in Birmingham was a woman called Maud Kate Smith, who was in her 90s then, in fact was in a nursing home. But um, she gives an amazing account of um, what it was like to be forcibly fed. I mean, this was 70 years or so after the event, but it was obviously so uh, etched in her mind. Uh, and it's, I've listened to it so many times. Uh, I mean, it just it was so realistic um, of um, how, how it was. And in fact, she gives, as well as the, the actual physical description of what it's like, but she also gives an idea of the mental uh, state, you know, of trying to think herself out of uh, the cell and and seeing herself from above and being thrown across the room. I don't think it was metaphoric. I mean, I don't think it was actually. It was sort of metaphorically being thrown across the room. Anyway, it was that um, kind of research that I've uh, I've done over the years. I mean, mm-hmm. just listening to his accounts. And I've also, then, of course, Michelle couldn't uh, do do it for um, just for this book. But I've read a lot of the accounts in the National Archives of the police accounts. Or the home office accounts from um, the governors uh, of um, uh, Holloway and uh, other prisons, Aylesbury and Liverpool and uh, Strangeways, where um, uh, suffrage prisoners are being forcibly fed. And it's just so uh, banal, uh, the accounts, you know, not... uh, you know, not being good, that would be, say, the, the prisoner wasn't being good, wasn't being accommodating, um, those kind of uh, remarks. And then you get, um, in these files, uh, it goes a bit behind uh, these bland uh, um, official accounts. And uh, there's one that I read quite recently, um, just in the summer, when I was looking at some papers in the National Archives of a uh, suffragette in Holloway, who... It transpired had uh, had her front tooth uh, knocked. At least it just said a tooth first of all, but then it transpired it was a front tooth, um, and the um, governor just said, "Oh well, it was um, you know it was worn away anyway." She was early middle aged, and uh, I suppose teeth weren't very well looked after that at that time, and it had uh, got rather fragile. But it uh, had uh, come in contact with a. A shield that the doctor was wearing around his hand as he put it into her mouth and it's broken off so I just thought what it would be like 
to be a middle-aged woman in Holloway missing your front tooth. I mm. mean, it's awful. I remember you. This is Michelle speaking, by the way. Hello, Elizabeth. Hello, Michelle. It's really good to hear your voice again. Um, and I remember you telling me about the tooth, and um, and it's something that went that went went into the story actually. And I haven't had a chance to hear myself the accounts that you're talking about in the women's no. library. But you did um, a wonderful job of, of of translating that for me. And and actually, I I after we spoke, I ended up. Um, looking to uh, a lot of contemporary accounts of forced feeding because of course it's not just something that happened a hundred years ago it's something that happened in Northern Ireland during the Troubles Mm. it's something that the British government is party to in um, you know all kinds of uh, places around the world um, today and um, and so so those ended up being woven in and I think something that your research really really brought across to me was that the the times and the actions and the lives of the of the suffragettes a hundred years ago are they're they're with us now like it's not history is not gone the past is is not gone it's very much part of the fabric of of who we are and how we are now oh indeed yes indeed and of course uh, the um the hunger strikes in northern ireland uh, were of course absolutely dire yeah um and uh suffragettes in many ways were were fortunate that uh, they didn't have to uh, um, uh, carry their hunger strikes to the limit. Yes. Um, the, the government did step in, I mean, whatever way you look at it. I mean, imagine that yes, if they'd had uh, all those martyrs in Holloway, what, what that yeah. would have done. <laughs> well, that's it. And I, I, you really... I mean, hearing hearing you talk about the, the banality of the Home Office accounts is just is chilling. And... Um, it's again, you know, I'm re- reminded of um, Hannah Arendt's phrase about the banality of evil. I mean, she was talking about the Holocaust, and you know, but it's 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 a phrase that really resonates across mm. so many um, historical and contemporary sites of torture. Really, um, the banality of it. I think that was the thing mm-hmm. I found shocking, and and a yeah. lot of some of the texts that you pointed me towards. Um, you know, there was the ones that were written by. Uh, the suffragettes themselves or 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 people who are very involved in that and i i could feel their passion and their and their and their personalities in those texts um but but yeah many of the many of the accounts are it's shocking it's shocking like like talking about a shopping list you know can you get some milk and also her front tooth cracked when it came into contact <laughs> with the guard it's like wow okay there's, there's a fantastic account. Um, hi, Elizabeth. This is Helen. Hello, hello, hello. Um, there's an absolutely fantastic account that is on display at the People's History Museum at the moment, which is part of Selena Martin's papers. Um, mm-hmm. These were these are in a private collection. They're owned by her grandson, um, but it's actually a letter written from the governor of um, Liverpool Jail where she was being held. Um, Selena Martin was really young when she was arrested. Um, she was a working class woman, and and yet her family were quite very supportive of her actions. And her mum really sort of famously said, if I could go to jail instead of her, you know. And Selena's father actually wrote a letter to uh, the governor because he was really concerned about how she was being treated. He, he had heard sort of these stories of what happened. And the governor writes back and says, any actions imposed upon us by these suffragettes, by these militant suffragettes, is really unfortunate, but we're doing it as kindly and humanely as possible. And I remember reading that and reading, kind of comparing it with Selena's account of being in jail at the time, and just being horrified that a governor could write a letter to her father saying, firstly, that 
these actions have been imposed upon us by these women and secondly you know it's it was humane and, and it just seems that was that really the stance they could take and that they could be proud of taking it was it was a really chilling moment to read mm. that account mm. michelle can i ask you why in particular you chose to write about this point in the suffrage movement hunger strikes specifically and forcible feeding why that appealed to you more than any other point in the movement i think um the thing i think the thing that drew me towards writing about that is that it's very visceral it is I wanted to write something that was not uh, focused on the kind of um, historical uh, record of who did what where and when because you know there are many 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 people Elizabeth being one of them who have more than you know written uh, you know beautifully and with great depth on that Um, and I'm a fiction writer I'm not a I'm not a historian I know that's not my um that's not my strength and I'm just aware that when I learned at school about uh, about the suffragettes and voting rights movements and and all kinds of um, all kinds of human rights um, movements actually um, they were very sanitized they were very dull they were very top line um, you know Helen and I were talking earlier about how there are some Accounts certainly the one I received at school that made it sound like the Pankhursts like single-handedly, um, just mm-hmm. you know just just themselves just one family they changed everything that and, and which of course is not the case they were the figureheads but there were many 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 people particularly working class women who who were not recognised but did a huge amount of work, um, so and you chose to write about one of those working I w- class women. I wanted to yeah it felt really important to write about one of those working class women especially. Because last year was the centenary of wealthy women getting the vote. It was not the centenary of women getting the vote. It was well. Actually, let me just butt in there. Oh yeah, please. Uh, it's it, there's been a, a lot made of of that, but although I mean it wasn't wealthy women. It was women who weren't uh, absolutely poor. Uh, you, yeah. had, you only had to have property of a value or inhabit property of a value of five pounds. It wasn't um, it wasn't a very onerous uh, voting qualification, actually. Um, but it certainly did exclude uh, um, uh, poorer women and also even middle-class women who were living with their parents, say. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so there were different categories who yeah. were excluded, but it, it wasn't necessarily that it was just the vote for wealthy women. That's fair enough. That's a good point. Because um, it's definitely something that I've had as a bee in my bonnet. So thank you for, <laughs> for clarifying it. But it feels really... I, f- I feel like this period right now, where we are right now, between last year and uh, 2028, is very is interesting in terms of looking back historically. Because um, I think another thing that I, I you know took from my, my learning about this at school was... Of course, when things are presented in a linear timeline type of a way, it can give this illusion that uh, things happen neatly. And of course, change doesn't mm. happen neatly. And um, so a hundred years ago today, there were still um, all kinds of things were in motion and um, all kinds of changes were, were yet to be to be one, really. So which real life characters were you inspired by specifically? Was there one person that you had in mind when you wrote this story? 
or did you kind of make it an amalgamation of it was definitely an amalgamation and it was also definitely fiction mm. um and um annie kenny was obviously a huge inspiration um because she's you know she was from around here mm. like um that's one major reason and uh, she was a very charismatic um person by all accounts mm. um really powerful and um really interesting just just a really really she she wasn't she wasn't a woman who who uh, made herself smaller to make other people feel comfortable and I, that's really interesting to me however um i again i think this is the fiction writer in me i didn't want to uh i didn't want to just say right i'm going to i'm going to do a fictionalized account of annie kenny's experience during this week of of her like you know um because i think she's also um she's one of a very few um women who were named um you know often in in sort of like lay understanding like mine of um of this history um so i didn't want to only focus on her there's a definite amalgamation um there's lots of women that elizabeth pointed me towards um who there's now there's one in particular and i can't remember if you'll know who i mean elizabeth but mm -hmm. i remember you telling me she's mentioned only in one particular book that's very difficult to find um and she you know but this was an important um this was an important person um in terms of um suffragette history particularly working class suffragette history um so there was a lot of different threads that i i, I did lots of reading um drew through lots of threads um and then decided um you know sh what short stories do really well is they focus in very tightly they don't try or pretend to tell large um, sweeping stories. I mean, some of them do and some of them do it well, but I think the short story is particularly apt um, at focusing in very tightly. So I, I just thought I'm going to do that. That's what I need to lean into mm -hmm. that tight focus. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Well, I thought it was an immensely successful story. I, I really uh, did admire it. Um, and oh, uh, because just that... Uh, um, idea of being in the cell with the ways out. Uh, I, I loved it. I, I mean, I, I, I thought it was really good. Gosh, that is so reassuring <laughs> to hear. <laughs> <laughs> Michelle, that might be a good point for you to actually read us your story, if you'd like to. Okay. <clears throat> I'm going to try my best not to make lots of uh, paper noises. So this is, uh, there are five ways out of this room. One, crack in the corner where the wall meets the floor, where the sun performs a quick seven-minute sweep early each morning before disappearing across the prison walls for another day and night. It's wide as a pin, that crack. Maybe two pins, side by side, but big enough for the small army of fork-tailed silverfish that emerge when it's quiet enough and still, surveying the floor and eating what I don't boiled potato, piece of grey meat. Two is the window, of course, and were I eight feet tall with hands like a blacksmith's vice, this would be my way out. Brush aside the bars as if iron were a lock of hair grazing a cheek. No rats from the window, because it's too high, but rain sometimes, and cold. Bone deep. I lie on the plank that serves as my bed and press myself against the wall so that the breeze misses me. Push my feet up against the hot water pipe. 
arms down, chin down. I breathe into my hands, long, slow breaths, knit my fingers together, and close the gap where the tents should be. All that blood on the weaving shed floor, and the neat white bone, the broken bobbin, is now just a ragged scar and an empty space. When we're allowed out in the yard together, Lizzie runs her fingertips across the scar, traces rings around my swollen knuckles, finding the spots where the skin stayed thin, between the fingers, inside the wrist. E39, that's her name in here, after her cell number. I'm E38. When the guards are posted to the end of the hall, we stand at the small window in each of our cell doors and meemaw across the gap. We talk about anything and everything, ask with slated speech, our plan for the liberals. Which of the guards might be with us? They can't see us, the guards, and even if they did, they wouldn't understand, just two hungry mill girls mouthing nothing. Will you martyr yourself, she wants to know, and my answer is quick. The dead can't fight. I want victory, and I want to see it, I tell her with you. She smiles at that. Big Barbara Brown beats boys before bowing, she mouths, and I stifle a laugh. That doesn't make sense, I mouth back. Barbara's tiny. Okay. Proud Pankhurst pulls pillows from pedants. Her eyes gleam. Kind Kenny kills kicking kings, I say, and she looks shocked covers her mouth in mock horror. She's so pretty when she laughs. We will keep this up until 8 p.m. when the electric light goes out and then we're mere shadows against the cell walls, alone again until daybreak. The third way out of this room is more inventive, metaphysic. Perhaps close to the non-believers, this shining path grows brighter with hunger and thirst. The walls of my cell disperse like mist in the sun. My skin sings. Let the sea roar. Let the fields rejoice. Let the trees of the woods sing out because it is nothing at all, this drafty hallway in between us. I feel her here beside me, coy in her prison cap, her palms on my palms. I close my eyes and I reach for her face. She is the May Queen more precious than rubies, arms outstretched, her hair dancing, her feet bare. Around her is a wreath of daffodils and cowslip and daisies, and the ribbon above her head declares all of merry England for the common folk. I remember copying the picture when I was small from the cover of the clarion. And here she is now, born into flesh as my dearest love, ageless and timeless, leading the parade of the righteous. I keep my eyes closed and stay here as long as I can. The fourth way out of this room is through the door, but there is little hope of that today. First, they come to collect the tray of potato and meat, untouched but for the silverfish, and when they enter again, I set my chin high, defiant. My hunger is my weapon, and I hold it with both hands. Boudicca's longsword, Joan of Arc. After the tray, we fight. Six nurses and the doctor in his hat, and when they hold me down, I tense every muscle, push against it. 
I clench my jaw just so, and the doctor runs the clamp back and forth, its teeth on my teeth, searching for gaps. This is when I must be most fully alert, all my focus on keeping my jaw set for as long as I can. I see it in his eye, the slight glint of discomfort, of shame. He hides it well, but this place has sharpened me. It's the routine. 57. This is the 57th time. Lizzie and I keep count, and this time, instead of clen clenching my eyes shut, crying out, I look, and I see. I look him in the eye. 57. Doctor. He finds the gap, of course, left by my treacherous missing tooth, and the steel jaws open with each turn of the screw, forcing bare the softness of my throat. The blood is running from the track scored across my gums, and he turns it once more, pushes my jaw wider, wider, so wide I feel my face will split, and it clicks, the crack of a tooth, and then sharp, bright pain, rush of blood. My next line of defense is my throat, and so I hold it closed, as much as I can with my mouth forced wide. I tighten every muscle, but now he comes with the tube, two yards of terror. The nurses shift their grip on my limbs, and I cannot resist. Thick as a finger, India rubber, and as he forces it down my throat, I taste the bile of another outlaw, the tang of infection, her mucus still clinging to the sides. He pushes it down, further down, and I feel as if my eardrums have burst, as if my chest were flayed by the butcher's knife. The pain is so much that at one point it blinds me. I see only shadow and shape, hear the clang of the metal bowl, the fork, mixing, splash of warm milk. I know it's coming. Bread as hard as a stone, in pieces, and I press against the tube, against the nurses, until I feel it hitting my stomach and collecting there. I hear Lizzie call out to me. When they leave, I am not I. I was never meant to survive, that's what Father said. One month early and too small, but somehow I did, even without his confidence. He sent me a letter yesterday to tell me that the heather is in bloom, every hilltop, and when I closed my eyes and pictured it, I saw the green and purple against the cold Oldham sky, balancing between rain and snow and sunshine. Janie's half-time at the mill now, he said, the last of the family. The girls from the weaving shed send their best. Keep your chin up, my girl. I read it again and again ran my finger over the letters. It's more than he's ever said to me, directly to me, and so I did. I kept my chin up. They gave us each a book when we came in, in addition to the Bible, of course. Fresh air and cleanliness. I told Lizzie that if they wouldn't give me writing paper, I'd tear a page from it and write back to him in the margins next to the instructions on how to scrub a stone floor. The light is still on. I'm numb for a time, eyes on the silverfish crack, my throat burning from the tube. The scrape of metal on stone, 
an iron screech breaks through. Lizzie's cell door. And for the 57th time, I prepare myself for her cries. Though I can't yet speak, I mentally repeat the line for her. Dismiss whatever insults your own soul, and your very flesh shall be a great poem. She does not reply. I vomit hard against the wall, wipe my eyes, and then vomit again. Lie down on the plank, feed on the hot water pipe, and listen. Force myself to listen. I clear my throat and I speak. Your very flesh shall be a great poem. My voice sounds weedy in here, high-pitched, and I still can't hear her. I clear my throat again, spit to the corner, and speak. Your very flesh shall be a great poem. And then again, louder, enough to fill this room. And then again, that it might creep under the door and across the hallway. Your flesh shall be a great poem into her cell, and the next cell, and the next, and your flesh shall be a great poem, and your flesh, and the next. I can't hear her across the prison grounds, and again, I'm shouting now, out past the gates, dismiss whatever insults your own soul, onto Southall Street, your very flesh shall be down Manchester Stone, and into the office of our opposers, whatever insults your own soul, a tide of women, of outlaws, of voters, a great poem, and you shall be, you shall be, I shout, as loud as I can, against the cold metal door and the silence from her cell, your flesh, your very flesh, shall be a great poem. Thank you so much, Michelle. It was wonderful to hear that read. Um, you're right, it really, you can feel it so, so, so much when it's read aloud. And, yeah, I, I kind of wanted to pick up on the that line that you keep repeating with beats and breaks and stuff, that line of poetry, because um, I know that Elizabeth... Um, talks about that in her afterward and how that was a piece by Walt Whitman that was kind of used to bridge women of different classes together so I wondered if you could tell us kind of what the significance of that was to your story and why it was important for that to be in there well um, yeah you're right Elizabeth um, uh, mentioned to me um, that Walt Whitman's poems volumes of his poems were often exchanged as um, yeah, as as um, tokens of bonding and uh, togetherness, and of course his poetry is um, so political and so accessible and very. Um, he kicks against authority, like his poetry kicks against authority, and uh, I I love I absolutely love the fact that 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 was that was something that. Um, that suffragettes shared among each other to uh, to kind of brace their spirits, you know. Um, and so I the the line that's in the um, that's in the story is from uh, the foreword to Leaves of Grass, um, and I had it up over my my desk while I was writing this, and it was God, I need to put it back up. It's a good one, actually. I brought it with me. If you <laughs> if you do want to hear it, mm-hmm. um, it's short. Um, but I'm going to read this because I think it's yeah, yeah it just speaks exactly ex- it speaks to exactly why why it was his poetry was just so um, galvanizing, and it's called "This Is What You Shall Do," and um, yes, that totally influenced my choice of title for the story. <laughs> um, this is what you shall do: love the earth and sun and the animals, 
despise riches. Give alms to everyone that asks. Stand up for the stupid and crazy. Devote your income and labor to others. Hate tyrants. Argue not concerning God. Have patience and indulgence towards the people. Take off your hat to nothing, known or unknown, or to any man or number of men. Go freely with powerful, uneducated persons, and with the young, and with the mothers of families. Read these leaves in the open air every season of every year of your life. Re-examine all you have been told at school or church or in any book. Dismiss whatever insults your own soul, and your very flesh shall be a great poem and have the richest fluency not only in its words but in the silent lines of its lips and face and between the lashes of your eyes and in every motion and joint of your body. That's amazing. You just want to throw your arms in the air at the end. <laughs> really? You're God. Like, yes. Going star revolution. <laughs> yeah, thank you for reading that to us. Um, and it wasn't just uh, for the, the militant suffragettes that Whitman had uh, such a connection that uh, I always amuse that uh, in Millicent Fawcett, who of course was leading suffragist, in her autobiography, she's so attached to Whitman that uh, in a photograph that she puts up of her elderly father with her mother um, in a picture in front of her house in Suffolk, she specifically mentions in the caption that he looks like Walt Whitman. Oh, really? (laughs) That's great. (laughs) And uh, in fact, uh, her sister, one of her sisters, Agnes, who was one of the first um, interior professional interior designers, a a woman to be a professional interior designer, she was in business with her cousin, Rhoda Garrett, in the 1870s and 80s. And Rhoda was a great speaker for the suffrage movement. And um, Rhoda died in 1882. And there's a was found in their house uh, in the garden of the uh, house in the Sussex um, the, an inscription on a stone uh, which was a quote uh, bold cautious true and my loving comrade which mm. is from uh, uh, another Whitman poems poem and yes and so I mean I have other examples of this mm. being used as well amongst the suffrage community so uh, Whitman was really um, very much a, a speaker for them it's so interesting too that he like i i know um that he, there was definitely a phase in the sort of 90s early 2000s where if there was like a book to do with anything to do with queer or lgbt art there would be like a foreword mentioning a line from a walt whitman poem <laughs> like yeah. he's he's just resonated his work yeah. has just resonated for for so many people who were um yeah who were fighting for their rights so there's this huge sense of solidarity um, in your story, Michelle, and through that shared experience of Walt Whitman's work. But there are also a lot of divides between kind of different kinds of suffragettes and their different their differing opinions that I hope we can talk about. Um, so one example would be Sylvia's her kind of dedication to socialism and mm-hmm. um, women within that movement, whereas Christabel and Emmeline left the independent labor party and dismissed sylvia for her staying kind of in that in that group and i wondered if uh one of you had particular thoughts on that um i think it's really interesting i think it's often a lot more nuanced than we like to paint it as sort of the working class against the the upper classes and i think um 
yes, Sylvie was very much dedicated to the socialist movement, um, to the working class women, um, and she took her own path with that. For Emily and, and Christabel, I think, but personally, I think they saw it as a, as a more political decision. Um, I don't think they tried to actively exclude these women because they thought they were beneath them um in fact in sort of emmeline pankhurst autobiography she talks about when she was um, a poor law guardian in manchester um going to workhouses and see the conditions that young women were living in often spurred her on so uh, i don't think you know it was a, a huge class divide i think it was very natural class divide mm. that came about from the movement and um, i think it often came about from the fact that the freedoms of women you know working women often didn't have the time donate their entire being to these campaigns but on the other hand there are incredible exceptions to this and I think a lot of the time particularly in the case of women like um, Annie and Jessie Kenny which is fantastic they were given a life and a platform that they could never have had had they stayed mill girls in in Oldham um, so I think there's some really interesting nuanced stories that come out from the class divides but also the class solidarities that come from the suffrage movement mm. one of the biggest ones is Selena Martin who was one of the first women to be force fed um, and Constance Lytton and this is you know someone from the high up aristocracy who forms a real strong friendship with the daughter of a bookseller from the Lake District you know it's just these sorts of friendships and connections I think could never have come from any other movement and um, I think as much as we do have to face up to the class differences and you know there was some really troubling stuff I think you know personally I also think that Emmeline saw Annie Kenny as a bit of an exception to a rule in that she's brought into the inner circle um, and she's one of the only working class women to be so but at the same time these incredible relationships and friendships that come together from it as well. Mm. Yes I mean I, I entirely agree um, personality cross class and Annie uh, had uh, obviously charisma of her own and uh, and she was um uh, obviously a very good speaker and organiser as well, otherwise she'd never have been retained uh, all those years. Um, and uh, yes, so class, uh, if you're in intelligent and uh, um, and presentable, I think uh, class really um, fell into the into the background, really. I think what is interesting is the difference of experiences that we often get from class in prison and I think that's one of the biggest differences and if you look at the two sort of the in in the Museum of London archive there's the unpublished memoirs of Jessie Stevenson who is a very upper middle class woman who joined the movement and um whilst her experience of um being in Holloway was horrific she uh, the way she talks about it in her memoirs is so different from any other suffragette that I personally have, have encountered and that she does talk about the horrors of it and she is very kind of open about what she experienced but at the t same time she's saying that they the women who she was in imprisoned with they had sort of bought in a WSPU brooch with them and they all took it in turns to wear it in their cells they would hand it between women so when you were feeling a bit sort of completely exhausted by by prison they would kind of say oh it's your turn to wear the brooch <laughs> when Jessie gets the brooch she tries to pin it on the governor that was her kind of attack at prison she really never stopped and you know when she was cold and she she hated her room she snuck into the empty cell opposite her took the blanket off the bed and made it into a persian rug for her so you know she but then you kind of look at this experience of selena martin so this is coming from a very you know very upper middle class woman this is a woman who had a dress allowance of 100 pounds a year from her family you know she is a, from a wealthy background 
and yet the experience of working class women like Selena Martin you know her her accounts of when she's arrested in 1909 could not be more opposite um so for me this is when we start to see the class divide when we're seeing how these women are being treated Mm. not only by the wardens and the governors themselves but their own mindset their own approach Mm. to it i think there's a lot of psychology behind how they feel they should be treated and how they get treated as Mm. well because then i guess there's the issue of how working class women um had a lot more at stake when they were going into prison because they were losing kind of their their incomes and obviously they'd have less to fall back on when they came out but that did happen to so Jessie Stevenson um lost her job so so it was happening across Mm. classes Mm. I think there's definitely more in terms of family I guess that's Mm. at stake and I think in when women such as Annette Robinson um from Manchester was arrested um, in her papers in Central Library you can see sort of suffragettes writing to each other saying well we've been taking we've been taking themselves some food you know they've kind of do support each other in that but yeah I agree there was much more of a familial sort of problems at stake there. Mm. In fact of course generally one hears much less about uh, the working class uh, women when they're in prison though I mean they haven't written their their memoirs in the same way as uh, the, the, I mean, most of the um, memoirs written after the suffrage movement were by middle-class um, campaigners rather than uh, working-class ones. And when the suffragette fellowship uh, came to, uh, in the 1920s and 30s, to ask former suffragettes uh, of their experiences, I mean, the, where the Jesse Stevenson papers are held, um, it really is only the... the um, on the whole, it's the working class, uh, uh, the middle class women who respond. I mean, it, the mm-hmm. suffragette fellowship became quite a, a middle class coterie in the, the post suffrage world, I think. And and so the working class women are written out to a certain extent that because there's not the material to write them in. You have to go and search for it and uh, um, try and um, create a picture. And it- I think as well, just to come back on that with Elizabeth, it's even harder because I think that, you know, there are sort of names of working class suffragettes that we kind of, you know, use to say, oh, you, you can talk, especially, you know, so at the People's History Museum, they talk a lot about Hannah Mitchell. And it's very easy once you have an established name to kind of, and Annie Kenny, to keep going back to them and, yeah. and to kind of rely on them as your example in a way rather than do what you have done Elizabeth which is amazing um is to go out and actually find yes. more women and actually do the digging I think yeah um yes of course Hannah Mitchell was really only uh, involved with the WSP for a relatively short time as well mm-hmm. um in London there's a the particularly interesting woman is Minnie Baldock um who was certainly working class but then was quite exceptional because um, she uh, got her herself positions in local government. Um, I can't quite remember what it was. I don't know that she was a poor law guardian, but anyway, some position, you know, which showed a real initiative. Um, and she uh, organised with... She was Annie Kenny's first contact when she came to London in 1906 uh, in East Ham. Um, but after a few years, I mean, even many... Bulldog got sidelined. I, I think her health became uh, poor. But um, there are some uh, uh, letters that um, she she was in prison and she sent uh, out to her husband, and he replied he was looking after their t- 
two little boys. So he was being very supportive, but of course not every working-class woman Mm -hmm. could uh, rely on a supportive husband to keep the household going while she was uh, in prison. I think, um, I mean, you've you've sort of, you've touched on something really important there, which is, I, I know, you know, part, part of part of how working class histories get erased is is uh, like you're talking about um, so you know, source documents um, and that type of thing but also working class people um, are not homogenous of course as you know n- no group of people are homogenous um, but of course there were there are higher incidences of, of illness uh, if you are poor if you're living in poor conditions if you don't have adequate nutrition if you you know, you're at much more risk of becoming disabled. You, you know, have many more, um, many more potential risks that you mm. have to manage. Um, and I, I know, I think that that also comes into when you're looking at who's who's been written out or or not even actively written out, but overlooked. Um, not only class, but also race. I know that you've you've touched on that in your writing as well, haven't you? Mm. Yes. So. Elizabeth or Helen, could you talk us through what exactly was the cat and mouse bill? And do you think it solved the problem of force feeding? Um, Was force feeding dropped suddenly after the cat and mouse bill was introduced? Or was this ongoing? Yeah, you take (laughs) this one, Elizabeth. (laughs) Well, uh, the Cat and Mouse Act was... uh, uh, was brought in in 1913, April 1913, to allow the government or the Home Office to uh, release they forcibly feed uh, hunger-striking prisoners for a bit, but then release them. They were then expected to return to uh, prison once they'd recovered their health um, and resume their sentence. So, I mean, this uh, three-year sentence might go on forever, uh, you know, under that way of, uh, of doing it. But, of course, most of them just didn't return to prison, so they were then outlaws. And uh, this had a um, a cumulative effect, I think. Once you're outside the law, I mean, really breaking the law doesn't really mean very much. So it was these women, the mice, as they were termed, who uh, were responsible for a lot of the arson and bombings that went on through um, the latter part of 1913 and into 1914 um, when they were on the run from the police. And the Police Gazette would have uh, pictures of them. I mean, so they were wanted uh, uh, really beyond beyond the law. Uh, and it, but did it? Um, it didn't stop forcible feeding at all. I mean, it, as I, I mentioned earlier, the government seemed to become rather. It's never really been quite explained to me how this happened, but they seemed to become rather more adept at. Uh, forcibly feeding women without making them ill, or whether the women really did become more quiescent and uh, just um, accepted it more. Uh, I mean, it, it's, it's not at all clear exactly what went on. This was in 1914, in sort of summer months of 1914 or so, before the outbreak of war. Mm. I guess something else that's not really spoken about is the the consequences of the forcible feeding afterwards and how women suffered with this? Well, people did uh, uh, suffer long-term effects. Mm. Maud Kate Smith in her uh, uh, recorded interview um, explains, uh, you know, her, I can't remember what word she uses anyway, but her, her nose is so sensitive uh, having had uh, these tubes put put through it. She had nasal um, tubes uh, feeding and um, so that was 70 years later still suffering mm-hmm. and wow. other people did um, suffer kidney damage and lung damage 
if it had, when it went down the, the mm -hmm. food went went into the lungs rather than into the the stomach yeah, so that there was nothing nobody uh, as far as i know nobody actually died as a result of it but uh, people were systems were weakened i mean annie kenny was never forcibly fed but the hunger strike was supposedly i don't know whether it was true or not to have um, had long-term consequences. She, I think, she died of di suffered from diabetes that mm -hmm. uh, killed her eventually. I think that's right. Um, but whether that was connected with hunger striking, but it certainly hunger striking couldn't have done anybody uh, any good. And if they were in a, you know, slightly frail to begin with, it uh, must have had consequences. Absolutely. So when everything fell silent, when the war broke out and the WSPU ceased its campaign of militant action, how was it agreed that they would just stop everything? And how then did the split come about between different women, you know, the pacifists and the pro-war? Yes, well, the, the WSPU ceased uh, um, to campaign simply because Mrs Pankhurst sent out a letter saying that they were ceasing to campaign. <laughs> and mm. there was certainly a small number, not a, a great number, a small number who uh, very much um, resented this and did carry on. Uh, there were two small groups of former WSBU members who did carry on campaigning, but of course they were so small that they had no, they were not at all effective. Um, and the Pankhurst then backed um, with the, I mean, although they, they were no longer called the WSPU, it eventually became the Women's Party, um, their organisation, but it never had um, the force that it previously had. Uh, but they backed the government um, war effort and they particularly um, uh, worked with Lloyd George to bring women into uh, the munitions uh, factories, I mean, in that practical way of um, supplying workers for the war. And uh, they organised, um, uh, there was one particular um, large march through London in 1915 that was, in fact, paid for by Lord George, but or by Ministry of Munitions, but fronted by uh, Mrs Pankhurst, where uh, women were called on, you know, to, to come into the factory. Mrs Pankhurst was also sent to Russia um, to uh, appeal to the women of Russia, to appeal to their men to stay in the war. Um, this is just before uh, the revolution in 1917. Um, so she was uh, very much um, uh, working with Lloyd George to promote the war. Mm. And um, But on the, in the suffragist uh, campaign, that was where there was a greater split because Mrs. Fawcett, uh, like Mrs. Pankhurst, uh, was backing the war effort. And the, the NUWSS, um, Mrs. Fawcett's organisation, although they too um, said that they weren't campaigning actively, they did keep lines of communication open with the government behind the scenes and lobbying went on in a way that the Pankhurst didn't uh, specifically uh, campaign for the vote. But the NUWSS really was split because there was a, um, a, a large um, section of its uh, national executive who supported the pacifists movement and wanted to um, uh, go to the conference that was being held in The Hague for women of all nations uh, to uh, lobby for uh, a cessation of, of the war. And uh, But Mrs. 
course, it um, rather neatly managed to get uh, the members of her national executive who were uh, pacifists, uh, they were removed from the national executive and uh, NUWSS uh, then carried on as a pro-war organisation. Um, yeah. I was just going to say on that that the, the Women's March in, in 1915, the souvenir serviette from that is actually uh, in the collection at the People's History Museum oh, yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's it's stunning, very much like, um, and we have um, other serviettes that relate to the, the yeah. WSPU marches, and their similarities are incredible. And what I always liked about that object is that you can really see the transferal of skills. I want to talk about how the story's being told now and how it relates to what's going on in um uh, with women women's movements now and the the marches we have now and the women in power that we have now you know the the similarities between the campaigns now and especially i think last year with it being the centenary um highlighted a a real kind of um rejuvenation of of women's activism and, and women's protest um but also highlighted a lot of flaws still still within mm. a lot of women's movements that are still, you know, not intersectional and not yeah. international mm-hmm. and still have a lot of the same flaws that the WSPU had, you know, 100 years ago. And I think whilst it was fantastic, I mean, it was incredibly wonderful for me as a suffrage historian to see so much being done on the movement, um, you know, in television, in the press. Um and kind of really appropriating the green, white and purple, which, you know, I, I think I lived in green, white and purple last year. That's <laughs> all I wore. But there was something about not... Even that wasn't inclusive of the, the suffragists mm. or the Women's Freedom League. And, and you know, it it's kind of taking inspiration from one part of a very big story. So mm. whilst it was amazing to see the influences from the suffrage movement on campaigners... Um, it's a whether we are kind of taking the right parts away from it whether we're kind of we do need to start looking at how intersectional are Mm. but also the how it lasts um last year the women's march um you know the big international women's march january um so the the manchester one really popular um the manchester one was on sunday and there were 20 people there so when you're thinking about that exactly how sustainable is this sudden popularity mm. of, of women's activism and and you know how can we ensure that you know we don't just say oh yeah the suffragettes were great let's look at them next you know anniversary mm. it's actually making sure that their influence and and how we want to be inspired by them is being sustained through campaigns um, and how the legacy is really being remembered such a good point and i think i think i know that like my own sort of um you know focus in activist work that I've done in the past has been really driven by uh, the ways in which I am very conscious of being at the sharp end of oppression Um, and the ways in which I'm very conscious of those people who are near and dear to me who are at the sharp edge of oppression so actually um, it's yeah talking about say women's activism is one thing um, but being specific as well and talking about um, black women's activism talking about uh, refugee women's activism mm-hmm. uh, one of the most active groups and successful um, women's act a- activist groups that I know of right now is is women asylum seekers together yeah, absolutely um, yeah. and you know that's it's just it's crucial and it's it's um, you know Manchester Pride um, in 2018 was led by 
Manchester lesbians stand by your trans in in direct, uh, you know, speaking to, speaking back to um, an anti-trans um, group of mm-hmm. women who who hijacked the front of London Pride, um, allegedly speaking for for women. Um, so I, it's like th- those are the intersections, you know. And I know, I know the the women who 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 initiated um, the uh, the Manchester, the start of the Manchester march. Um, they're they're active in so many other ways as well. Mm-hmm. So their activism is to do with, um, you know, uh, sexual oppression, um, you know, uh, gender based violence, gender oppression, um, immigration. Um, racism, you know, the, all of those things. You often start to see the same mm-hmm. kinds of faces popping up, and the same people who are supporting one Some another in their different actions, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. I feel like that's that's just crucial to the future and to the sustainability and to the, you know, we need to have each other's backs. Like wh- whatever we Absolutely. is, who, whoever, whatever group one person identifies with, whether that's to do with class, race, gender. You know, whatever that is, it, we gotta have each other's backs. Like. Definitely, but there's also yeah. another kind of the opposite element, which is kind of troubling. In that, which I had a lot of last year, is this kind of uh, hero worshiping people, like individuals like Emmeline Pankhurst. And the problem is, is that when you put someone on a pedestal, you completely take away their human aspects. I, you do not admit they have flaws. Yeah. And this started coming up when suddenly it was realised that Emmeline Pankhurst wasn't great when she was talking about jewish people and she wasn't particularly on the right side of you know proper race conversations and suddenly it's oh she was an anti-semite she was this and actually once you've put someone on that platform of hero worshiping and putting them at the helm of not only the campaign in the past but also the campaign now you know everyone kind of looks at emmeline as the person they want to kind of emulate when you find out things that they didn't do quite well or what, that they were on the wrong side of history of, it becomes very complicated. Yeah. Um, and I had a lot of conversations of people either only wanting to talk about Emmeline Pankhurst in relation to contemporary activism or exclude her entirely. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And it's actually getting the right balance, again, of how much we're taking from these women, mm. but actually remembering that they were just women. Yes. They, they weren't goddesses. They weren't, mm. you know, immortal. They were they were women with flaws, with character flaws, the same way we do. They probably had moments there where they thought, I do not want to go on this march, and yeah. went reluctantly. <laughs> you know, we, we, we see them as a lot of the time as sashes and brooches, and they were actually so much more. And I think it's remember then that they were, you know, whilst a lot of the things we still fight for are the same as what they're fighting for which is really tragic Mm. we've also fought for things and won or are still fighting for things that they necessarily wouldn't agree with or understand Um, so I think that's always for me I think important when comparing or kind of examining contemporary activism with the women's suffrage Mm. movement as well it's Mm. crucial isn't it and pedestals are dangerous very (laughs) dangerous. dangerous yeah yeah the problem is that people put on what you know how we see that today on that they you know they reflect our kind of very progressive liberal views on someone who lived a hundred years ago Absolutely. who wouldn't always be having those views and it's really frustrating and elizabeth i'm sure you agree with me as a historian when people say oh but emily pank is just a massive racist and it's yeah, like well yeah. it's no i mean just a woman of her time and uh, very uh, much of uh, i mean she wasn't a progressive thinker really in any way except uh, on the question of the vote okay well i guess if there's anything you specifically you want to summarize um 
Um, well, I guess, I mean, the, the big thing, I think, for me on the subject of, of hunger strike, and if, you know, just add like a, a summary in, is that, you know, if we look at the papers of uh, Charlotte Marsh and Selena Martin, who were the first women to be uh, force-fed in Winston Green Prison in 1909 in Birmingham, what amazes me is that Selena Martin was arrested because she threw uh, an empty bottle of ginger beer through an open window into the Prime Minister's car. It didn't hit anything, it didn't break anything. Um, and she's arrested. And I just think stories like that really bring back... We're talking about working-class women. You know, most people haven't heard of Selena Martin and Charlotte Marsh, and yet their experience sparked the whole of the the force feeding element that they they sparked the protest against it they sparked constance Lytton going undercover as a working class woman into a into a liverpool jail mm. um and uh, when constance Lytton did this she took on the uh, alias of jane wharton and the reason she called herself jane because it was similar to joan joan of arc she kind yeah. of really deliberately okay. picked that and um one of my favorite things is when she's writing about this in her book constance says yeah i went to manchester to get some horrible clothes <laughs> it's the place to come for horrible clothes um she you know she cuts off her hair she really dresses down she goes to this prison she goes undercover she's treated absolutely horrifically and you know that sparks a whole huge conversation across the country um and it's very easy to attribute that to constance and constance was incredible she was brave enough to do this Mm. but if it hadn't have been for the treatment of women like selena martin of women like charlotte marsh who we've forgotten about who Mm. we essentially don't talk about and partly is that it's archive material but if we can bring these stories through you know incredible works of fiction like michelle's um Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. through um you know the work of historians like elizabeth through museums and galleries and archives like people's history museum who have got selena martin's letters uh, on display at the moment you know we can really start to rewrite them back into this story um, and i think if that is the legacy of the centenary that's just been that will be an excellent legacy that there are people who were part of this and people who gave everything they had to it without much reward Mm -hmm. i think um and i think you know so people like selena martin um she just stops she she stops all of her activism she we think she probably stayed in the wspu but there is no mention of her after 1910 and that's because she had you know two children Mm. and Mm. she was widowed and you know this whole succession of things that happened to her that didn't happen uh, you know the Pankhursts or the Kennys in in mm-hmm. that respect, um, and I just think it's really important that we are remembering them and we're creating stories around them. That's what I found absolutely incredible when I was reading the story. I was thinking, these are women I know, these are women I've read about and whose letters I've seen. These are women who who mean something more than statues, and it mm. it, it felt really good to read that so thank you Michelle oh, I think I want to say <laughs> massive thank Seriously, you Seriously, my, yeah. my absolute honour and pleasure that's really no, cool to hear that oh no it was and thank you, so you know much, hopefully more museums will start to, to can, show these can I quickly ask what what's oh. the response been sorry to the exhibition uh, so the response to represent voices 100 years on was absolutely incredible we didn't actually do a suffrage 
exhibition it was about representation because it was mm. the representation of the people like that had been passed and we worked with 12 community groups so including um safety for sisters which are part of women asylum seekers together mm. um girl gang manchester reclaim um, and we worked with all these groups who gave us archive material who wrote responses to objects um, it was supposed to like a feminist scene um, which you know is kind of like the the best sort of activism sort of published thing you can have um so we we really created that with these groups completely informed by uh, an editorial panel of community members of historians um and the response has been absolutely overwhelming um not just to the suffrage material Mm. but to what's happened next and Mm. what's happening now um, one of my favourite parts of the exhibition is the um, section where we talk about kind of what happened after women won the vote. Um, and there's a picture of Ellen Wilkinson, who was one of the first female MPs and who is my personal heroine. Um, <laughs> there's a, a portrait of her. And when she first became an MP in 1924, she was younger than married. And everyone would just talk about her hair and the dresses she wore until she said, can a woman not do her job as well in a dress of bright colours as she can, you know, any other way? Um and so you know that's her that's 1924 and Mm. then there's an image of Diane Abbott from the opening of parliament in 1987 when she was first elected in and it's a really candid photo we found in our archives because she's putting her makeup on and she's standing next to a very very young Jeremy Corbyn and it's a really interesting picture because you think even at the opening of parliament a woman is putting her makeup on you know it's just this Mm. really kind of contrast Mm. and then the final image is um theresa may and nicola sturgeon on the front of the daily mail um (laughs) the legs Legs cover and to me that kind of summarized the whole exhibition of Mm. this was Mm -hmm. happening then and this is happening now and they could be from the same news story they could just be so I think that was the power of the exhibition and that is the power that talking about women's suffrage has Mm. which is examining how things were looked at in the past examining how they've continued to be looked at and actually standing up and saying they were saying it was wrong Mm -hmm. back then I need to be the one saying it's wrong now and I hopefully think that an exhibition will encourage people to use their voice not just their vote actually go out and get active and get involved in a group even if you don't want to march down a street waving a placard you can do something Mm -hmm. and i'm hoping that's what people will take away from the suffrage i think it sounds like it sounds like it's happening thank you (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much alan i'll let you go do you have any burning questions um what i wish that i could have picked up with helen then um is kind of about how we because i feel like now women's movements are becoming more and more intersectional yeah so um trans women um women of color especially um and rightfully so and also because the way we campaign now is well is is because we're living in a different space we've got different kinds of issues to march for so what i was thinking my experience of marching is with reclaim the night about you know sexual abuse on the streets and stuff like that and it it occurred to me that this feels quite as as myself i don't know if becca would agree or women like me it feels like our the what we're marching for now um with girls in different kind of brackets is feels very separate to the suffragette movement okay i mean so one thing i think that's important to to keep in mind is that um um, black women have been leading feminism for as long as feminism has been around. They yeah. just haven't been focused on. Yeah. Um, so, so Kimberly Crenshaw, who who came, you know, she coined the term intersectionality yeah. mm-hmm. um, in 
When was it? The 80s, possibly? The late 80s, early 90s? I read this, like, 90s? the other day. I think it was 1981. Yeah. 1989. Okay. So, so a li- little while ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and um, and I think um, certainly in, in like, the the sort of um, feminist conversations and spaces that, I, that I'm, I'm trying to engage with and learn from and be part of, um, there's much more recognition, I think, of, of women of color um, as... as as leaders, as thinkers, as um, as people who are, are shaping um, all kinds of activism, um, and yeah, I as a white person, I can't, I I, I, c- I can read and listen. I don't, I can't talk to, um, you know, how what kinds of conversations are happening um, among Black feminists about about well about the word feminism, and you know, is is there a sense of a connection to the suffragettes or not? I honestly course I don't know that as a white person um but um but it's something um yeah it's interesting that you're saying about not feeling feeling that connection with the suffragettes and I do wonder if part of that is is actually maybe less to do with um the realities Mm. of what they were going through and what they were fighting for Mm. and more to do with perhaps how we've often been taught about it in a Mm. very sanitized Mm -hmm. way Mm -hmm. that is so different Mm -hmm. from the when I got to speak to Elizabeth she the kind of details that she can go into because she's of course she's she spent she spent her life mm. um finding finding mm. archives and then finding what's in the archives mm. and talking about those source materials and as with Helen you know just name named numerous people that like well this woman was written out this woman doesn't get talked about so yeah i think um I know what you're saying about a, a sense of disconnection, and I do wonder if that if that's what it is actually. Yeah, I guess it comes from the dialogue that I see uh, to do with um, white feminism and yeah. and the the whole pussy parade thing, and it's like yeah. um, that's very centered on just like I'm my vagina, my vagina is my vagina, and then the whole kickback from that, which I think is just yeah. Um, and maybe then in my head I'm connecting that with white the white suffragette story that I've heard about yeah and then put, putting them together but maybe that's my thing so okay um tell me if I'm reading this wrong mm. um but I'm I think I'm hearing you say that there's there's uh there is and there needs to be a reckoning in terms of um you know those of us who who call ourselves feminists or who who um want to um agitate for change under that under that banner under that word or you know um what what do we what do we take from the from our past whose shoulders are we standing on whose shoulders are we standing on who's unnamed mm-hmm. particularly mm-hmm. who who are the shoulders that we're standing on that we don't know their names because there's many many people um who fall under that category mm-hmm. and and i think it's really it's, it's really crucial to kind of always be um reflecting on what we're doing um always um and and reflecting as well i mean i talked earlier about um you know people with with slightly different you know coming at activism from a slightly different focus slightly different approach and i think it's really important that we have each other's backs and and part of i think why it's for me really important that that we have each other's backs and by we i mean all people who are fighting for um equal human access and rights um, you know, to safety, to, to, um, you know, to 
to fair judgment to to clean water god <laughs> amazing that that's still a fight and yeah anyway don't get me started <laughs> um but we we need to have each other's backs mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. we have different kinds of privileges across all of that you know big very multifaceted we um and and their you know activism is exhausting and tiring and dispiriting as well and I've definitely like I went through a big period in my life where I stepped back from it because I felt utterly burnt out totally um jaded mm. upset <laughs> mm. um and um and and now you know I think I think that's I think that's kind of a natural part of any any kind of work like that that you know you, you need to life happens as well you need to take care of yourself and and take care of your life and and each person who's part of those kinds of movements and those kinds of actions deserves and needs to have the space to do that and when they do that then another person can step forward right Mm -hmm. and support like Mm -hmm. we need to be questioning and reflecting Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. we have to Mm -hmm. and we have to be better we always have to be better and and know 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 that we have flaws Mm -hmm. and uh you know when other people help us to see that to 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 notice to take note yes okay yeah you're right that's a flaw that's something yeah. that i need to be better on check yourself right check, check each other <laughs> it's, it's crucial it's yeah. crucial for us to not burn out mm-hmm. and feel isolated from each other mm-hmm. i think thank you so much michelle for being with us and for reading from protest my pleasure <laughs> um protest is available from commapress.co.uk and all good retailers goodbye for now thank you for listening to episode four of the comma press podcast thank you to my three guests for joining me michelle green elizabeth crawford and helen antrobus this podcast was produced in partnership with manchester metropolitan university and the people's history museum tune in next time when we'll be discussing the older master marches with author Stuart evers and activist michael randall